0: Today's show is sponsored by Crater Lake Taxi. If you're going to drink, don't drive. If you're going to drive, don't drink. Call us. Don't
1: be a fucking idiot.
0: 541-333-3333.
1: I am Citizen 44. The mystic bells ring out the message. Danger lurks in the darkness of the day. Rizzle, Rizzle, Rizzle. here's one for you.
0: Hey, everybody, Mark Eringsberg here. Welcome to Citizen 44. Great to be here and talking to you and telling you about what be up in my business. What is up is the kids are out of school. It is summer, officially summer. You wouldn't know it because it's raining outside. And it's a little cold. I actually threw another blanket on top of my bed. So the kids are out of school. And one of my absolute favorite things to do is travel with my son and daughter. And and we don't do it all that often, but it's really pretty special. And I like all of us getting out of the routine together and just moving into a completely different scenario with everything being spontaneous and unexpected and just... The sights and the sounds and the tastes and the smells and the whole thing, just all new for all three of us at the same time. So I'm stoked to take a trip together. Today uh, was a pretty special day. On my show a few weeks ago was my dear friend, Robbie Lindauer. His mom passed a couple weeks ago. So there was a beautiful gathering at his father Carl's house in Gold Hill. Just about maybe, you know, 20 people to play music together and sing and eat and talk and laugh. And it was really nice, and I'm super honored to have been there with them. And, you know, Robbie's kids and I have a really very lovely relationship, Nicholas, Sophia, and Mimi. And Nicholas was one of the valedictorians of the 2017 graduating class of Ashland High School. Great kid, like national champion caliber debater, Super smart, you know, a mini Robbie in many ways, but totally his own thing. And I understand he slayed them with the speech he delivered at uh, the high school graduation, which I do not doubt. Okay, here you go. Drum roll. Gold kazoos. Gold kazoos. So... You will recall, perhaps, if you've listened to previous shows, that I've manifested a bit of a kazoo thing going on in my life. Well, lo and behold, not just lo and not just behold, a gold kazoo was put in my hand today. A gold kazoo. Robbie had purchased eight kazoos, eight gold kazoos And as per Linda Lindauer's request, we all either sang or played instruments to When the Saints Go Marching In. And eight of us played on these gold kazoos. And what Robbie told me was he bought two packages of four. Two packages of four each. I went to Gold Hill. He got gold kazoos. I mean, that literally just popped in my head right now. It's uncanny, baby. What can I tell you? I'm in the zone. I'm all over it. It's all over me. It's always this way. And I'm super grateful because I am beyond entertained, man. This is all up in my face all the time. I experience, I pass it on. It was great to be with Robbie's family and his friends and and to just have a lot of warmth and beauty around Somebody who contributed so much, such a wise woman, such a loving, caring, mindful, reasonable woman who went out at the top of her game and didn't suffer and was ready to go. And everybody you could tell was cool with how cool she was. I didn't even know most of those people, but it didn't matter. We don't need to know everybody. We just need to know that we're all sharing in this thing together. We are all experiencing pain. We're all experiencing confusion, difficulty, challenges, physically, physiologically, emotionally, metaphysically, in all aspects of this experience. We're all going through this thing together. That should be enough for us to stop kicking the fuck out of each other. We got Alan Hicks in the house today. But first, let's check in with Zach Ellard at Rogue Frameworks in a new segment I like to call Laundry Day. Zach Ellert is the owner, proprietor, framer at Rogue Frameworks. I see you're gonna do some things.
1: Yes, I'm gonna do some things.
0: Replace some glass?
1: Yep. Acrylic and- on those, and uh, she wants a mat on this one
0: too. Cool. Yeah. Is that her work? Yes. Okay. That's her work too? Uh huh. Cool.
1: Yeah.
0: This town is stuff. full of artists. Yes. Really? It's kind of wild how many people are doing art yep. in this town. Now, you're a photographer, I understand.
1: I, I, you do understand that. Yes, you are correct.
0: So, and you and I have... We're doing
1: a, a show coming up here uh, pretty soon. You have a show? Yeah. Where? Uh, Cafe 116. Oh,
0: yeah. downtown.
1: Yeah.
0: When does the show begin?
1: It's uh, It'll be July, August.
0: July and August? Cool. Can you imagine what it takes to make... I mean, this is all machine done, of course, but remember back in the day? How did they make, do it? They, they did all this shit by hand, didn't they?
1: Yeah. You know, a lot of, uh, a lot of the fancier moldings are still hand finished. Really? Yeah. Mm. You know, it's all from Italy, too. This is all Italian? Well, most. Well, I mean, that's, that's where framing started.
0: Oh, I did not know that. Ah, history. Huh. When did it start? Like, around what time?
1: Back in the days. Oh, that time. <laughs> that specific era. <laughs> you know, back when all those like fancy artists were doing. Shit. Right. Like. Okay. What's Are the those most famous people?
0: What's the most expensive frame you have?
1: Uh, probably something way in the top left corner up there.
0: How much? How much is that? Whatever Lots? that is. Let's find out. He's looking it
1: up. Uh, yes. Retail price on this is seventy-three dollars a foot. <laughs> seventy-three
0: dollars a foot. What's the most expensive framing job you've ever done? Single piece. Yeah.
1: Uh, Again, I'm not sure.
0: Well, in recent times, what is one of a a more pricey single-piece job? Well, that
1: one's almost 700.
0: This one's 700? Okay. Do you use glass in something that large? Uh,
1: Yeah, that one's got museum glass in it.
0: Okay, so it'll be super heavy.
1: Yeah.
0: Huh. What's the advantage of using glass over Plexi or, or the other way around?
1: You know, acrylic is less prone to breaking. It's lighter weight, but it's also more prone to scratching.
0: Well, it's not like you're going to put it near the cat scratching post when you hang it up and say, ah, don't scratch
1: this because it's glassy glass. Yeah, because cats listen to reason. (laughs) But like for artists who are selling work and moving stuff around a lot, acrylic is a little easier, it's lighter weight, and it's not going to
0: break. Then what's the advantage of buying glass at all? It's,
1: you know, sometimes it helps, gives you a more solid presentation because acrylic is flexible.
0: Yeah, but it's not like you're carrying it around. It's showing yeah. people.
1: It's also more uh, glass provides a better vapor barrier. Acrylic uh, moisture can pass through it. Ah! If you want like museum glass, for instance, compared to museum acrylic, museum acrylic is like twice as much as museum glass.
0: Okay, but you can but drop cool it on the ground. Shit! It's
1: even scratch proof.
0: Oh, you've got like a sample thingy, and you do this for people. You go, look, I can't scratch it, and they go, I'll take eighty feet of that. <laughs>
1: So here's your uh, regular acrylic. You know, fairly prone to static. scratch. That's
0: a cool demonstration with a little styrofoam balls. You got your styrofoam museum balls. acrylic
1: here. You know, it's much clearer. Styrofoam. Balls so the
0: acrylic, stick to it. the acrylic doesn't stick, but the glass does.
1: No, glass doesn't. Does not. Right. This okay. Is, this is acrylic to acrylic.
0: Oh, I see. I see.
1: This is your plain, standard, everyday acrylic. Oh, so and, you know, easy to scratch. Yeah. Versus this is museum acrylic. Okay. Compared to the museum glass, right? but lighter weight. That's a lot, cool. A lot of museums use that these days. They do.
0: Well, it seems reasonable, but you say it's twice as much money as the it's glass. It's not cheap.
1: I mean, it's great stuff, but...
0: So again, if it's going in a museum, well, the weight differential is like huge, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: Especially if you got a giant piece.
0: Right. Okay. What's the biggest piece you've ever done?
1: Um, I did a piece that was 60 by 60. What was it? There was a big uh, print of uh, what was his name, Klimt, who was the artist. Hmm.
0: I don't know that name. <laughs> Sounds like famous. you made it up. No, it's
1: like a famous artist.
0: It's like artist. <laughs> <laughs> very George Costanza <laughs> noise that no, you it's made. It's
1: like K-L-I-M-N-T, I think. Huh.
0: I'm going to say that is uh, $108 per foot.
1: You are very, very close.
0: How much is it? Uh, $115. Wow. Ever sold any of that stuff? Oh hell no. <laughs> and and let me ask you something, because you have a lot of styles on the wall, like really beautiful... Well, yes
1: I do. ...frame bro. styles. I'm so
0: glad you noticed. Well, I mean, I've been coming in here for a long time. You've got like 500 pieces up there.
1: There's a good 1,000 up there. Is there really? Please. There's not
0: a 1,000 up yeah, there. Yeah, there is. No way. There's 27 rows there. Okay. Times? How many is it need for One, two, three, four. Okay, so there might be a thousand up
1: Wow! <laughs> That's what a thousand looks like. Plus all the stuff on this side. Oh,
0: right. So what's going on outside here? He's actually got a really great view of people walking by.
1: And of the mountain, across the way. And the mountain, yeah. You've got There's really... Peak. You actually have
0: a really pretty view out here. It's, yeah, it's great. Super nice. The scenery is great. All right, Zach. <laughs> Say bye, Zach. Bye, Zach. Alan Hicks is here with us, and Alan's been a very unique friend of mine. Alan's the guy who would take me to do my laundry when I had given up my car for three years, and we would have these, you know, cool times together where I'd just dump my clothes in, and then we'd go have coffee, and we'd sit around and chat and talk about life and whatever. He's also, by the way, one of the last Mohicans that I know who's still married. So, by the way, you can talk. You're not, no, 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 shaking your head. This is, no, no, that's, this is an audio experience. You really need to participate.
1: Excellent. Oh, there he is. I will do that. There he is.
0: Okay. So uh, it's great to have
2: you here, Alan. Thanks so much for doing this. I I really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, What's going on, man? Well, I just finished uh, listening to your third podcast. Oh, with Rich Reese? With Rich Reese. I didn't even know he was here. He just got back. And I just discovered Colin Hay after years and years of, not knowing men at work ah. and it was like, weren't you alive in the eighties? I was, but it was like, well, I guess I was alive in the eighties. <laughs> I think I was doing other things. I think I was doing Est in the eighties or something ah, yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. You were doing that. I was doing that. But you were like, not
0: just doing that. You were, you were part of that. Was I was that the logistics coordinator for San Francisco. Let's get in the way back machine. start at the beginning of Allen and, and those
2: things. <laughs> Where did you grow up? Oakland, California. Okay. What did your dad do back in the day? Father was a pest control operator. Before that, he was, uh, worked in the shipyards. Oh, he was okay. a laborer most all of his life. Came from a farming family. Worked in the hard rock mines. Uh, old school guy. was like 48 when I was born. And, wow. um, and he ended up uh, getting a pest control license and, um, and servicing the people in Piedmont and Montclair. Yeah. And uh, what was then called West Oakland. Okay. Did he like doing what he did? He liked being out of doors. Okay. He liked gardening. Yeah. He liked telling people, "Don't put these pesticides on your on your yard." Yeah, but that's what he was doing. I know. So he was just kind of he impl- would like talk them out of it. He was so ethical, but they didn't care. Rich people wanted their every all the bugs gone, you know. So I'm surprised what he, did. he didn't come up with some kind of an alternative. Being he a, was, well, he did. I yeah. mean, he was one of the first subscribers to Rodale's organic gardening and he didn't put any of that stuff on his yard. Right. So our yards were totally organic and no pesticides and he had all of these different methods. He was spraying methods. the shit out of everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> Make a buck. And what about your mom? She was a school teacher. She taught uh, nursery school when I was a little kid and then kindergarten and first grade and did you go, were did, you in the
0: same school with her at any time?
2: In nursery school. Yeah. In preschool, I was there with her. But then she taught in the Castro Valley School District, and, um, and I wasn't in that district. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they worked hard, yeah. mom and dad, hard workers. Yeah. Yeah, old school. Yeah. And they're not around, right? No.
0: You're 68 years old. Yeah. 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 How does yeah. that feel?
2: Well, mortality starts to knock on the door. I went to the doctor the other day for my routine physical and he said, well, you know, this is the time we have to talk about the end of life. It was mandatory. It was on the list. It was on the list. Okay. That at this particular time. And, uh, and what was that conversation like? Minimal. Um, you know, I'm sort of Woody Allen. That's fine if you want to talk about you, but I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> no, but it is a process. When you get older, you, you start thinking about that. And so I find it kind of a boon in a way to let go of that worry, and put the energy into creativity. Right. Start making stuff. Sure. Start doing stuff. Start writing stuff. Yeah. You know, well, look, I'm 55, and I'm doing this now. Yeah. I'm doing a lot of things now. It's the renaissance period in our life. It truly is. Yeah.
0: I I think there's, you know, you've got a lot of this uh, insecurity and immaturity behind you, and now with some of it, (laughs) I mean, I'm still (laughs) a fucking idiot, but I'm just saying... I'm at a certain confidence level now. Actually, I'm gaining more confidence now, maybe than ever in my life, and partially because I don't give a shit anymore about what people think about me. Mm-hmm. And two is, I'm just
2: comfortable in my skin,
0: and I'm not mm-hmm. afraid of death. That's mm-hmm. really a, a, probably a big part of it. Is you know, I'm living better now than any time I can recall in my life.
2: That's great, Mark. Yeah, yeah. I I've been doing this thing called Body Talk recently, and it is just a turnaround for me. What's uh, body in talk? terms Talk? body talk is um, it's a it's a way of discussing your feelings by feelings I mean the sensations that you have in your body that are residual from events that you had when you were young oh. and you dredge up that stuff and you take a look at it and the practitioner is there just really to guide you through that process so that you could see that a lot of the stuff the the so-called bad things that happened, uh, the judgments you made about those, the interpretations you made about those, stuff that you heaped on after the actual event—that right. those were held. Those are held at the cellular level, and it's so freeing to realize that this is this is these are just thoughts. Right. These are things that you cooked up, yeah. uh, and, and almost 99 uh, percent of the time uh, after the fact. Right. Uh, So when you really look at the event and what happened from a a more or less objective point of view without laying a bunch of junk on top of it, it's freeing. Yeah. It's totally freeing. Well, you can
0: get over it because it is... You're aware of it.
2: Yeah. Once you understand something... It's kind of hard to go back and go, well, I don't understand that Well, you anymore. can't unknow what you know. No. Well, this is part of the importance of training us, because once we know what we need to do, we won't unknow it. It's pretty simple. You know? <laughs> anyway, how did you come across this exercise? Well, Janet Ruger is a local practitioner. Um, I was turned on to her by a mentor of mine, who I've had for many years, who actually goes way back to Est, yeah. who moved to Ashland about a year ago. And it's kind of cool because... We are establishing more of a friendship rather than a professional relationship, student-teacher relationship. Right. But anyway, we get together, we have breakfast, and he says, Yeah, I, I did this the other day, and something that I was holding on to my whole life, I didn't realize it. And it came up, mm. and it was an opportunity to just, wow, that's
0: <laughs> it's a single point of view. Yeah, exactly. It's your opinion, right? but that may not have any reference to what actually happened to you. And maybe that's a self-defense mechanism that we forget very quickly what happened to us and don't process it. And then we manufacture something and then we deal with that, which is not really what we should be dealing with, which was the initial event that you've forgotten about. Especially when you're
2: young. Yeah.
0: You protect yourself. Well, and you don't... We're not taught how to deal with anything. We have no clue how to process our sensations, our emotions, anything. So we fumble along and we carry a lot of pain and suffering with us. And now you're 68 and you get to... We look at it and re examine it and go through it differently and appreciate it and be able to get over it, yeah. which is something we need to be able to do instantaneously when things are happening to us. Mm-hmm. But because no training, there's no way we can, right. uh, which is always why I'm pushing on this. Like, we need to really fundamentally educate ourselves much better so we can eliminate a lot of this unnecessary suffering and be more creative more of the time and be with each other, you know, in that
2: non judgmental, reasonable way.
0: Okay, so what are you doing as a child in Oakland?
2: I'm riding my bike a lot. Huh. Back in the day, you know, this is we're talking about the 1950s now, kids were glued to the saddle of their bike. I yeah. mean, that's what they did. It yeah. was just like an appendage. My kids didn't have that. When yeah. they grew up in, in Marin County, uh, you had to put them in a car and drive them to soccer. You had to drive them to the birthday parties. You had to drive them to school. Yeah. So they didn't get on bikes. Uh, it was not safe. Right. Uh, but in those days, that's what we did. We, yeah. we were... We were athletes on bicycles. Yeah, we yeah. didn't even know it. Yeah. You know? yeah, So I did that, and well, Oakland is a very interesting city. still is a very interesting city. Uh, it's changed dramatically. In the 1950s, what was happening was there was a huge immigration from the South. Uh, African Americans were sort of fleeing the, the servitude that, that had been heaped on them for a couple hundred years. They were leaving that area, and Caucasian people were leaving too, in the hopes of coming out to the west coast for jobs. This influx of people in the 1950s really changed the dynamic of Oakland. Oakland was a pretty mellow place in the early 1950s. You know, had just come off of the war, there was a lot of jobs uh, available, and people got along. Mm-hmm. But what happened when you had this influx of people from the south vying for these jobs, the Caucasian people got the jobs. Mm-hmm and the African-Americans did not. Right. That started the animosity, uh, those two cultural and ethnic groups that, that Oakland has uh, probably never recovered from. No, yeah, no, that's very interesting that, that that was kind of the seed of, of the difficulties. Absolutely. And, of course, that affected, affected the school systems, uh, affected where people uh, wanted to continue to live. And at one point, uh, my neighborhood went from... Just this kind of Aussie and Harriet blocks of mowed lawns and everything was nice and neat, you know, and tidy whitey, yeah, very tidy whitey. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the dynamic changed. What that whole population started to bring into was both white and African American was different cultural values. Right. And some of those, uh, because there was a lot of anger associated with the, the clash of those cultures. And again, it wasn't necessarily the existing white culture in, in Oakland. It was this influx from the South. Uh, so they brought all those prejudices. And, so they and just
0: came together with their shit. They and, came together with their stuff. Oh,
2: So what happened, by the time I was ready for high school, my high school became such a dangerous place that um, my parents said, you, you can't go there. What high school was it? Castlemore High School. So we moved to San Leandro. So there's a big influx of white Caucasian families moving uh, out of that urban area and into the suburbs. Um, and, of course, that occurred in many, many uh, urban areas, and especially in, in California. Yeah, so we, we moved to San Landro. I went to high school there at San Landro High School, and uh, it was you know back to an all-white experience again. Right. Not very diverse at all.
0: So before you left, what was your experience with this new mix of culture?
2: It went from... Walking to school with one of my favorite friends, African-American guy, to one day, it just changed like night and day. You mean his attitude or? Yeah. Uh, meaning there was it, now a problem. You have to understand that right there in the nineteen early 60s, you had civil rights. Sure. And the Civil rights movement. So a lot of these people were being educated uh-huh. about their situation. uh uh-huh. And they were pissed off. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I was labeled as prejudiced. Oh. That sucks. I didn't even know what the word meant. Yeah. You know, probably in the fourth, fifth, sixth grade, somewhere right in there. Yeah, Yeah, it was like, almost like night and day, I didn't know what hit me. It was so weird. That must have been really sad for you, though,
0: because you kind of had to mourn a relationship. I didn't didn't understand Because you didn't get
2: it. I didn't understand it. What happened? What did I do? No. Of course, uh, you know, my father was there and his prejudices, and he was there to straighten me out about that. And what did he tell you? Uh, he had, you know, he had as, as a result of working in Oakland and working in some of the, the richer neighborhoods as well as the extremely poor neighborhoods. And as a person who was working those neighborhoods day in and day out, uh, running into a variety of situations, almost like a beat cop. Right. You know, you get out of your truck, you've got your equipment, somebody accosts you. So did he, he got harassed? Oh, yeah. And he uh, got, you know, he had to keep a tire iron did he ever under get his hurt? seat. No. My dad had a lot of courage. He had a pretty good bluff, but if you wanted to go beyond the bluff, he wasn't afraid. Right? Yeah, he was very much an old-school man, you know, and I think that he was a little bit disappointed in me and that I wasn't quite as macho as he'd want me to be. You know, he used to take me down to the boys' club to do boxing and stuff, and these little African-American guys would just beat the shit out of me. Right. (laughs) I never liked hitting anybody. I just never got any joy out of that. And, uh, you know, I did the best I could to defend myself, but I was a wimp. I mean, it was it was ridiculous. How long did he punish you by taking you? No, I he you know, he did. And I think he was he, he didn't uh, punish me. I don't he, mean uh,
0: deliberately. I'm saying no. how, many, how many times did he take you to the boxing a gym? <laughs> before he was done watching you get your ass kicked a few times. Yeah, okay. You know, and
2: I remember him taking me to, to San Jose for a exhibition bout with Rocky Marciano. And uh, he wanted me to. To get into the, you know, the whole Friday Night Fights thing, and I just went not into right. it. Um, so that was a big disappointment, I think, for him. But he, he came from a different world. Right. My dad was born in 1900, and right. uh, it was like having a grandfather for yeah. a parent. Uh, so it was like a generation behind in terms of my peers. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm, I'm touched by this, this separation anxiety that you went through early on based on things beyond your control and a change in how america was getting along with its colored brothers and sisters yeah like it was
2: just fucking ugly dark times it was and you know to some extent it's it's still there yeah. uh, well to a large extent it is still it's just yeah. a different look at the same thing yeah. continuing i think i you know i did pretty well with it in the final analysis I had a lot of uh, empathy for so-called Native Americans. They don't like to be called Native Americans because they were the first ones here for crying out loud, which is a a group of people that were... uh discriminated upon and uh, far more than African-Americans. And most African-Americans will will acknowledge that. Yeah. You know, years later, I ended up adopting a child of color. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. So it was, and it was interesting because, you know, you lose all of that stuff when you're holding a baby in your arms. Yeah, it's your baby. There's no color or anything. Yeah, so we've had to encounter that, of course, in growing up. my, My kids are adults now. right. So we've wonderful uh, adults, by the way. I love your kids. They're yeah. freaking awesome human beings. No, they're yeah. they're very special and yeah. they're very successful too, um, which I'm proud of, and I'm actually beyond proud of of them.
0: We're just super happy for them. Yeah. yeah,
2: you know there was a difference because uh, my there was my biological son, he was white, and there was my uh, African Danish daughter. Right. And they're two different people. Totally Surely, two yeah. different people. Yeah. And even one, if
0: they weren't adults, they're still you know. Yeah
2: we always have different people for children. I think that's by design. Yeah. We're not
0: getting bookends. Yeah.
2: Yeah. They're totally different and very beautiful. Um, but my daughter says, yeah, it's like, um, she lives in Denmark and it's like the United Nations for her. Yeah. Wherever she goes. Yeah. So she has a pretty good hold on the situation. Um, it's, it's tough. Does Uh, she share with you any of her concerns about being an African American woman in today's culture? And, You know what? She was raised as a white kid. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes I guess with my former wife, I wanted to talk more about that. And my former wife's philosophy was build self-esteem and they'll be able to take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it really worked out. Yeah. We were living in the United States until they were 10 and 12. And then we moved to my first wife's home country, which was Denmark. And uh, they were exposed to a whole different culture, a whole different language. At a very opportune time, hugely beneficial for them. <laughs> They've gone all the way through graduate school for free. Yeah, free education. Yeah, free healthcare. Yeah, it's just a fabulous system from the standpoint of being satisfied uh, with those those aspects, um, and it's been very beneficial for them. They're world citizens. They're they're really people who understand the planet, understand diversity, understand the value of a multicultural experience. It's really a joy to be around them. Well, and that's why they're also hugely successful, too, is they're just nice, well-rounded people who love and love living. Yeah. I can't squeeze judgment out of my kids. I mean, it's they might have a preference in their music. Sure. But, you know.
0: That's really fantastic.
2: Yeah. So, where did you go to college? I first went to junior college. How did you do in school? I was average. Okay. I was just a Marvin McAverage. What do I need to do to get through this? Yeah, I couldn't go to university. I had to go to junior college, which was probably... And I've been to university now. The junior college is probably the best higher education that I ever went through. Two years at Chabot Junior College in Hayward. Yeah. Fantastic mm-hmm. facility, fantastic faculty, and I just came alive. I was suddenly Mr. Hicks. I wasn't this little Alan, you know, mm-hmm. running around in his uh, you know Lord Fauntleroy shorts. I was I was an adult, right? And all of a sudden, I went, "Wow, this is cool." So I blossomed there, and then I went on to Hayward State, which is now um, uh, California. Uh, it's East Bay it's called uh, East Bay California State College at East Bay so I went to Hayward State and got a I was going to get a degree in art but then it was the Vietnam War and they didn't defer art Mm -hmm. so I had to switch to something academic and I took political science my dad used to watch Perry Mason he wanted me to be a lawyer right an attorney (laughs) and he said take political science you know it's a springboard to law school and all that and I was an artist. I wasn't, like, doing this. I did it. I got my BA. Okay, hooray, you know. Right. So then after... Um, you had
0: to be in, a, in art or political science? No, in political science. Okay, so you, you took his... No, record. I had to. Well, I had
2: to. It was either that to be drafted. Oh, right. Yeah, I went to the draft board. They had my records wrong and everything, and, you know, so I... So did you escape? I escaped it You dodged because the I bullet? said no, no, no. no I said intended. here's here's my here's my transcript. You know, I've got a full load. I'm right, political I don't design. have time to kill people right now. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, right. um, and so I, I, you know, skirted that. And some of my uh, the people I went to school with did not. Yeah. And then I went to Europe for a while. Um, and Just you know, kind of did this vagabond thing and tried to figure out who in the heck I was, and that didn't work. Uh, but I did get to see Europe.
0: What do you mean? It didn't work.
2: I didn't figure out who I was. Okay. You have any... <laughs> I had to come back and do that. Was well, Jeopardy fun? Um, yeah, I I like I, I first went to England. Had some relatives in the Midlands, and uh, I spent a, I spent about six or seven months there. I painted houses and to earn some money, and I went to the local pubs at night with the with the, the kids that were in that community right. and hung out and and ended up going to Denmark too for the first time. So, yeah, so I came back and then I got back into art. I did a semester or two uh, back at Hayward. Then I moved to Berkeley and did a semester or two there. I was going to do my graduate work uh, in art history and never finished, never did that. Just kept t- taking student loans out and going to Europe and goofing off. I didn't have a clue. I, I really didn't. It was... And now I don't have a clue, but I don't worry about it. Then I didn't have a clue, and I worried we're about You concerned. Yeah. <laughs> now there's no fear involved.
0: No. <laughs>
2: that's much better. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so when I came back, that's when I got into, so this now we're talking about the late uh, 70s, and I got involved with EST, which was um, about a million people took that, that course.
0: How did it come to your attention?
2: You lived in the Bay Area, which was the seat of it. I mean, it, it eventually went all over the world, but um, you knew about it. Right. And you were invited by one friend or another to attend a, a workshop or a seminar to get an introduction to right. it. I really dug it. I mean, it was, um, you know, it's, it was a four-day course um, over a weekend. And it was uh, about philosophy and epistemology. And it was my first introduction to the realization that we aren't just this mind, this ego where there's another self, there's another consciousness that is above and beyond uh, this little programmed, conditioned wheel that's spinning up there all the time on autopilot right. and just like, you know, responding to stimuli and going, okay, that's what I will do too. <laughs> and, um, and really that's the, whatever you do. I mean, if you, if you smoke dope, you take LSD, you have a religious experience, you go on a meditation retreat, whatever it is that you do, all spiritual teachings, that's, that's basically what they're, they're trying to get at, mm-hmm. is that we are this something, this self, that's much more than, than our ego. Mm-hmm. And I got that on some level, but it, it's taken me really years to, to put that together and understand more what, that, what does that mean uh, in terms of this moment right here. Right. And you're still with the same guy. Yeah, oh yeah, you try to drag that puppy along. You can't rid of him. Can't get rid of him. You know, you can short circuit, yeah. but you can't get rid of it. It's yeah. it's always going to be there. And 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 a good job that it is because we do live in a an objective world right. uh, on the one hand, and a very transparent world on another. Uh, but you just don't want to walk across the street without looking both ways. Right. Well, and that's what we're doing now is we're just blindly just
0: moving about. Well, we're staring at our phones. Yeah. So we are walking across the street. We're driving without looking. We're doing lots of things without looking, yeah. which we've obviously done in some way, <laughs> forever. <Right. laughs> and the whole looking part is what you know. This is part of the whole training process of like teaching people that's awareness. Yeah. Like having just the tiniest bit of awareness, which creates, of course, much more awareness. But you're here to start... witness. You're here to witness. Yeah, and yourself first before anything else. Yeah. You know that's the priority. I think our priorities are a little askew. We're pretty much judging and looking at other people and formulating opinions versus starting with self and and doing that primary job and really, which takes all the time I I can't even see how people have time to judge others there's really not that much
2: time well, see, you understand something you understand something and once you understand it, like we said before you can't go there well, you can go there for a second because, you know, you get pissed off and well, somebody yeah, does something really you. stupid, of and you go, wow, yeah. <laughs> that's horrible. Uh, but why is it there? Why is it coming up in your existence, in your consciousness? Why is that experience that you're having right now, why, what, is, what is it about right. that? Well, that's it. You're, you're
0: talking about examination. You're talking about all the things that Huxley and all these prophets, if you will, brought to our attention, tried to convey to us to look back itself and do that contemplation spend some time take some time with you first yeah and we're not again this is a lack of instruction and and we do not have the wherewithal to just come up with this is what we need to do yeah. so it requires those that are aware of that to help the others become aware of that yeah now how old were you when you started the s
2: program oh so I see about 1978 born in 48 so That's 30 years yeah yeah and, and you went in out of curiosity. You were
0: not hired in. you were, did not become an employee at first, right? You went in. Yeah no, I as did. I went, I
2: went to the trainings yeah. and did two or three trainings, and then I came on board, was persuaded to come on board in logistics. It, I was working a 40 hour job. I was uh, at the time I was an apprentice in a typography studio, and I was working 40 hours there, and I ended up working 40 hours or more at S. So wow. I had 80 hour weeks. It was stressful on my relationships. It was stressful on me and people around me, and I did that for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Got to go through all the different trainings because <clears throat> I kind of didn't get it, and I kept taking these trainings over. And it didn't cost me anything because right. I was working those trainings, yeah. And it was an opportunity to say, okay, what, what, what didn't I get? You know, what well, I just, you know, I didn't, I, I wasn't quite sharp enough or whatever to get it, and there was nothing to get. Right, maybe <laughs> that was they the should trick. have told you from the beginning. By the well, way- they they did, oh. and, and as soon as they said that to me, I went, "Huh?" Right, it's kind <laughs> of a derailer. <laughs> yeah, it's a, yeah, it takes you in a weird direction, and and of course that's what they wanted to do, and. You know, it was really important. Uh, I think most people had a positive. you hear stories, the media, cra- you know, media didn't like this. I don't think the government liked it well, either. Well, it's because
0: it, they consider it brainwashing, and it, it yeah.
2: creates a mm-hmm.
0: bit of anarchy, per, perhaps, for them.
2: Well, yeah, people started thinking on their own. Well, well, maybe well, this is... And actually, it actually turned out to be a, a much more socially progressive thing.
0: Well, this is it. We're fighting against something that's going to be good for us. Yeah. It's so stupid that we keep looking at this as... Uh, being a debilitating or harmful like, yeah no these are the things we need to do so we can all just kind of get together
2: yeah yeah. so yeah so it was uh, and we don't have too many of those initiations anymore men, yeah. men don't women have initiations they have babies you know and, and uh, they go through the, the whole natural process but right. men don't and so this was a kick in the ass for a lot of young people at that state and there really hasn't been anything much like it there have been derivatives of that right. and there still are right and there's all kinds of you know individual practitioners and meditation groups, and you know it expanded you know uh, uh, exponentially, and and um, so there's a lot of opportunities. Look at Ashland, right? I now, mean, this is like a healing center. Yeah, that's all available to, uh, to us now. But then it wasn't uh, in the late '70s. What S did was they brought together a lot of technology and a lot of what theories kind of, of knowledge. What kind of technology? Well, everything from Eastern thought, Zen Buddhism. Mm-hmm to Dale Carnegie, mm-hmm. you know, and how to how to be present, mm-hmm. how to be more there and not spacing out someplace else. It was a training about what is, is, and what isn't, isn't. And that was so huge. Yeah. And still is. Most sure. people don't get that. It's like, how come the sky's not green? Yeah. And they worry about that their whole life.
0: Yeah. Cat on curtains, man. Well, yeah. it's because we're clinging to concepts and you know even uh, imprints historical imprints we don't even know why we are thinking and doing some of the things because there's things that come with us that we haven't overcome yet and we don't know why we're acting a certain way but we are depressed or we are whatever we are and because there's no training and there's no real self-examination there's no tools we're not given these tools to help us deal with ourselves Mm -hmm. that yeah people are hung up yeah totally hung up funny dale carnegie has one of my favorite lines of all time which is a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still that's right. which is so true yeah this is a label of course but i like calling myself a convincer i think jesus was a convincer all these concepts the gandhi's these were all convincers these were messengers that were set to convince you that whatever it is you're doing that's not working can be done differently and it really is just a matter of the more convincers we have to convince others that you can do it differently and the results are going to be exponentially different yeah and you will feel
2: better yeah you will literally feel better you're gonna take the rat out of the maze and yeah, yeah otherwise yeah. the you just well, won't get the cheese and <laughs> and and, and I, I think it was
0: I remember uh, rehearsing with Naked in public band and Chris I think it was it might have been Sylvia Massey who said. You need... No, no, no. You know who it was? It was Bob. Bob, uh, you know, Harmonica Bob. Oh, yeah. Okay. He's, I know what you mean. He said, you have to disrupt the pattern. And he was talking about music specifically mm-hmm. because there is a certain level of predictability. in. But when you disrupt the pattern, something else can happen. You yeah. can trigger something. Yeah. And I think that's part of our evolution here is we need to disrupt this cyclical, hypocritical pattern. Mm-hmm. So maybe that'll be a cataclysmic disaster that humbles the shit out of us. I don't know what it's going to be, but that pattern needs to be disrupted. And maybe that's through massive convincing, yeah. whatever that vehicle is going to be. So, yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah I, I think that um, given our, and I, I don't want to talk about the, the D and the T, but, you know. What's uh, the D and the T? The Donald. <laughs> oh, that guy. Yeah, that guy. Um, but, you know, he's created a situation. I mean, here's a guy that doesn't know that he doesn't know Oh, he's
0: the perfect teacher because he doesn't know that he's in a position to convince people the opposite he's a seinfeld episode yeah he's showing you listen don't do this (laughs) i'm doing it. i'm doing it (laughs) just don't do it look at how stupid i look really honestly so yeah
2: and i think you know i think this is an eye-opener for a lot of folks i think it's going to bring out a lot of good in people i hope Um, so they'll rally to to it um they're rallying right now yeah So, it's going to be very interesting to see how this is all going to spool out. Yeah, I think we've set up this situation. We've all collectively set up this situation to put this impetuous individual in this place that he really has no business of being. Right. You know, it's like, well, let's see what happens. And of course, there's a lot of craziness and danger associated with that. And like you say, anything can happen. Sure. That's what's going to happen. That's right. And we'll just have to deal with it at that time. Yeah. With whatever that is. In the meantime, we do what we can do. We do. And I'm hoping
0: that because we can see the absolute absurdity in what we have created, that down the road here with my children and their children, it will seem to continue down this path of reproductive stupidity (laughs) and that our children will start looking at alternative ways of how we can govern the situation. By taking on more individual responsibility, first of all. And not because it's impossible. This is an impossible task to ask somebody to govern us. (laughs) We have given away all our power. You reap what you sow. Mm -hmm. And we need to take that power back. And not in a negative kind of way. We just need to start educating and we shouldn't be not knowing what we should know so we can independently take care of ourselves and then take care of everybody else. Mm. But we're asking a pretty impossible task of other people to take care of us. Yeah, It's it's ridiculous. And so this is why we have what we have because we're asking for the ridiculous. So we now have the ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how low it has to go. I mean, mm. drug addicts hit the bottom and then, you know, Jesus looks pretty good. Yeah. Um, but then that's a whole other level of insanity coming back up the other way and yeah. sometimes they get stuck there. Yeah. I'm enjoying the show on some level and it makes me sad, very sad at the same time, mm. to watch us perpetuate our, our self-imposed suffering. But you know, I'm kind of doing this because uh, I'll, obviously we live in a bubble here. There's a certain level of sophistication and uh, intelligence mm. afoot in our little community here mm. and I'm typically preaching to the choir.
2: Well, I love the title, Citizen 44. Nice. I, I know your you know, association with the number 44, which numerologically is the healer. Yeah. Uh, but being a citizen, a world citizen, yeah. a citizen of Planet X, yeah. a citizen of awareness, and this is, this is where my children are, my adult children, uh, they're yeah. 34 and 36 now. That's how they operate in the world, yeah. with this kind of non-dual uh, awareness that is just a, like i say a joy to be around they're my teachers now right we are friends yeah i was talking to my son the other day and he said you know uh, dad you know we we've been at a long distance a physical distance off and on for the last 20 years they've been in denmark and i've been in the united states we go back and forth they come here they stay with me sometimes when they were younger they used to spend the summers and he said parenting isn't what it was when your parents were alive families aren't what they were when your family was together he said i have friends who are my age they're still living at home and they just stay in their room they don't even have a relationship with their parents he said you know this in
0: copenhagen that you're speaking of specifically yeah
2: yeah and Copenhagen is not the happy-go-lucky little dream world that it's often made up to be. Yeah. It's, it has its pluses and minuses, and that's why I use the word, it's a very satisfied culture. It's not necessarily the happiest culture in the world, although that is often attached to them. Well,
0: they're doing some things right They are for their people. Their social services yeah.
2: are, are stellar. Yeah. Uh, there's just no question about it, and they pay very high taxes for that. Alcoholism is a huge problem. Yeah. The breweries there in Denmark are one of the biggest export companies in Denmark, other than their intelligence exports, I mean, they have highly educated citizenry. Why do you think that they've turned to? I mean,
0: if I mean, alcohol is not intelligent; it's kind of an oxymoron. Then.
2: I see it more as a a social thing, which it is to a certain degree in this country. You know, long winters, people getting together, right. uh, having a good time, and alcohol just became part of it. And some of the people, that's not, it's not a non-issue. It's just a non-issue. Yeah. I mean, they can sit up, have a couple of beers to 2 o'clock in the morning, get on their bicycle in the middle of the night and drive home. But it is a problem. It is an issue. There are definitely some serious alcohol issues in, in Denmark. What was I saying about my son? I mean, we're friends. It's yeah. like we've talked to each other or we've emailed. I mean, here's the plus on cell phones and email. What a communication medium this has been for for me oh. for the last 20 years. Yeah. I mean, it, it has been the way that I can, in an instant, talk to my children. Yeah. They can instantly talk to me. Yeah. If there's a problem, boom. Yeah, it's really fascinating. So... I used to talk some shit about technology. And yeah. Uh, I don't.
0: I am, I am a lover. I mean, you know, I've got a girl person over there in Thailand. Yeah. And for free. For yeah. For fucking free. I can have a video chat with her. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, it's so fantastic. <laughs> you know, people complain, ah, my internet speed. It's like, yeah, look what you're doing. Yeah. 20 years ago, yeah, I right. would have to write a letter.
2: Yeah.
0: And then, or even back in the day, you know, you'd wait months and months and months for a letter. Dear Miffy, yeah. I'm out here in the fields. And by the time yeah. you get the letter, the guy's fucking dead. Right. In the if war. the letter got there. If it even made it there. Right, exactly. That's right. So yeah, we, this we are really blessed with and this is our double edged sword. We have incredible communication technologies,
2: yeah.
0: and we're not really talking to each other.
2: We've got to learn that. We've got to get beyond the obsession, see it as a tool. Right. Well, it's in uh, the
0: infancy stages, yeah. of really.
2: I just read this, or started to read, it, and then I put it down. I won't mention the title of this book, but it's, it's all about how to change the world and become a billionaire. And it's all about exponential entrepreneurship yeah. and all the stuff they do. And what they were so proud of, it seemed like one of the outstanding technological features of this is, of course, part of it is getting rid of these dinosaur corporations and doing things that are like Uber-esque. Right. That don't need all that stuff. Virtual
0: fucking cash, man. Oh, my God.
2: There's that. You know that guy's a knucklehead, right? (laughs) Anyway, no judgment here, but it's like the big thing on their radar besides robotics was surveillance. And they were overjoyed by the fact that in a couple of years, there'll be such a satellite system that they'll be able to look at any place on the earth down to two to three meters. And they were going, jump on this bandwagon. And I'm, I'm going to start walking around my apartment bandwagon? all the time. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to see me, you're going to have to see all of me. <laughs> oh, my God. So anyway, that's scary, I, that's, I know I thing. just kind of put the book down at that point. said, you boys are loaded. On How topic. did you end up with the book? Well, somebody gave it to me. They turned me on to it as a said personal branding, and I said, "Oh, because my daughter's boyfriend is a singer, songwriter, producer, and he's at that stage where he's about ready to vault into yeah. the next level." Yeah. So he started talking to me about branding, and I said, "Well, this person just turned me onto this book. I haven't read it yet." They turned me on to this book about you know, and so I turned him onto it. Then I started reading it, and I uh, oops. <laughs> then I wrote him back and said, so "Was there anything so.
0: redeeming that you got out of it?" what you read. There must have been something. I
2: I think that um, one of the things that really rang true, because I spent a lot of my years, uh, my uh, career years in advertising, ultimately, was that companies need to be with it to the extent that they don't box themselves into a corner. Because what's happening is a lot of corporations are boxing themselves into a limited view of the world. And they're becoming dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. And there's some good aspects to the fact that we don't need all this, you know, boards and mortar and, and steel and glass to house what we do. Right. We can do it on a little tiny box on our dashboard. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I think there's some positive things about that because I think one of the big revolutions that's coming has to be in the system, the monetary system. Sure. It's just, it's complete ephemeral, means nothing. Nothing. And uh, Other than whatever
0: perception that's been put of value on it that we have agreed. Agreed to. It's all about agreements.
2: All you got to do is stop agreeing and then you don't have to do it. And and the boys in charge can stop agreeing when they want to stop agreeing. Well, we can all stop agreeing whenever we want to stop agreeing. So anyway, I think... Big changes in that sense are on the horizon, and um, and any karma associated to doing the absolute opposite for what we should be doing for the planet right now is going to have ramifications. It already is. Of course. So that's where we are.
0: Yeah. I mean, and I think it's good. It means, because if you and I can talk about this and the potentials, well, then they're possible. This is not, again, I, I hear this word utopia and utopic and dystopic. It's like... If, if I can articulate something and frame it in a, a way to execute it, that means it can be done. Hmm. It's as simple as that. I mean, mm-hmm. we are the master creators. Yeah. We can do anything we want, literally anything. Unlimited. Unlimited. So it really is a matter of uh, uh, taking that energy and uh, repurposing it, whether it's going to the moon, whatever. Taking a certain level of interest and, and and doing those things, taking all those funds and whatever that all that energy, that human energy, and just repurposing it in a different direction, oh, yeah. and then we get a totally different result. Yeah. So it's not it's not hard. It really isn't. I yeah. mean, the, the initial work of deciding to do the the hard work
2: mm-hmm.
0: may be difficult or challenging in the beginning, but that's it's supposed to be. You're yeah. supposed to be challenged, yeah. and then once you do the work, you get the reward of yeah. doing the work. Yeah. This is natural law. This is not like bullshit. This is the real deal. It's how it's set up. We're actually set up to not fail. Right. We only fail because we're not leveraging the setup. (laughs) I mean, natural law dictates that if you do something different, it's Einstein's theory of insanity, Mm -hmm. that if you continue to do the same thing and get a a result that you don't want, well, then you're fucking nuts. Mm -hmm. And that you don't have to. Mm -hmm. There's nobody making, other than your agreement... To follow along with what others are doing, you don't have to do anything that anybody else is doing. I mean, you can call that an anarchist, you can call it whatever you want. Beautiful. Yeah, you can call it beautiful. You can call it being you and doing what you think Mm -hmm. is in the best interest of you and everybody else. Mm -hmm. And as long as your motive, and it's all about the motive, as long as your motive is to make sure that you and everyone that you know has what they need to be healthy, Mm -hmm. well, then there's nothing wrong with it.
2: Yeah, and, you know, there's some great uh, philanthropists out there that are, that are doing this kind of work and having these kind of discussions and thinking. Unfortunately, a lot of the people who are in charge have been elected or in some way have uh, attained a certain level of power are still operating in this old model that it's the wealthy that must be maintained. But why? Even- because that's their limited point of view. That's been their point of view their whole life. That's- well, okay, let's just say that we're that.
0: Let's just say you and I are super wealthy guys and we need to perpetuate this wealth. Why?
2: Right. I'm just asking, why do we need to do this? Well, it doesn't make sense to me either. And you would think it wouldn't make sense to them. How much stuff do you need? How much stuff do you want? You know, what is that all about? What kind of, you know, I mean, these guys, these billionaires are building bomb shelters. You know these luxurious bomb shelters with like swimming pools in them, and really, yeah, oh yeah, it's crazy, man. It's it's there's a big article in the paper about it the other day, and it was like you, these underground fortresses, you know, with you know leather couches. This isn't this isn't you know like a shelf with some canned goods on. Right. <laughs> this is a full. This is not the Happy Days Estate yeah. under the wow, ground huh. with you know photographs of outside murals on the wall, and it's nuts. Wow. It's absolutely nuts. I, you know, I guess they just think, well, you know, if we do slip up here, we'll have a place to go. Have a place to go. Right. It's very limited thinking. It's so limited. It's it's absurd. I know, but it's absurd because it's just, I just, I don't understand how they could have a limited purview. It's Darwin. I mean, it's like survival of the fittest and they think the fittest but is But they're the not wealthy. fit. I know. They're not fit to they're, make that they're, decision. They're
0: emotionally and, yeah. and in, in, intellectually unfit. Yeah. I want to help them. They're our brothers of and course sisters. they are we always yeah. say they we, we demonize that's a problem yeah. by the way yeah when we say it's their fault. Yeah. Because they are us. Yeah. They're only representing part of us that we actually don't like. I'm looking at myself right now. Well, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> How do I look? You're a much better looking guy, by the way. No, we're different. Yeah. We're different. That's true. That
2: was very politically correct. Thank you for saying that. Okay. Well, it's true. You You're know, Kevin Klein, and I'm Rick physiological Moranis. cell structures that have formed in different ways, right. and we make judgments about them.
0: I've told somebody that because of your look, I think you're very representative of a potentially a presidential type candidate. Huh. You know, you're a tall guy. You look like Kevin Klein. You got yeah. this whole... You're packaged. Yeah. You and I had talked many years ago about you running for mayor. And, you know, I get to be in the background, a little fucking mad scientist. Uh,
2: no, I thought you were going to run for mayor. No, I couldn't because there was clearly... No, 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 no. I, you know, I remember that I did this photograph and you were going to run for mayor. and I, Oh, yeah, uh, that's right. mark for mayor. See, maybe because that is so absurd... No, you went to City Hall, and you said, how much does this job pay? And they say, no, there's no pay for the mayor of oh, Ashland." Oh, that's right. And you said, well, see you guys Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to go sell weed. <laughs>
0: okay, I had the story backwards. I thought it's, it was... No, no, no. No, but the more reasonable story would have been mm. for you to run for mayor. Right. who's This upstanding looking, and you know, you don't have a lot of shit attached to you. And I have more shit attached to me. So I could be the idea guy in the background while yeah. you're waving and kissing babies and, uh, and
2: and be the little mad scientist helping anyway. Well, for the first time in my life, I, I thought I could do a better job as president of the United States. I've never thought of myself as a presidential leader. But now I think of myself as, gee, I could really do a, a well, pretty you know, good job,
0: That's a relatively pr- speaking. Well, I think that's interesting because you're probably not alone. And that's yeah. maybe a good catalyst, like to put the monkey up there and go, well, I could do better than the monkey. Yeah. And maybe that, will, that kind of thinking yeah. will let people know, like, oh,
2: automatically, we can do better. You know, that's an interesting point, and I'm going to go to a different uh, direction with that. But when I was a little kid, I remember looking, my, my parents went to Montgomery Wards. That's where they did their shopping. I loved Montgomery Wards. Yes. I got my first pair of Levi's at Montgomery right. Wards. And they were, like, stiff and, like, really big. <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> anyway, but they bought, they had to buy some front room furniture. Uh-huh. So they went into one of those showroom things at Montgomery Wards and they had this ensemble of a couch with the two coffee tables on sure. either side. And they had these paintings, these prints in yeah. frames, yeah. you know, kind of the antique gold frames right. and stuff like that. And they said, oh, that, that, that whole thing looks really good together. We'll take all of that. <laughs> so they did. And they moved it into the house. And I remember as a little kid. Laying on that couch and looking up at these Montgomery Ward prints, and I said to myself, "I could do better than that." <laughs> and I am—I'm actually painting again. Really? I yeah. I'm repurposing an old canvas, a huge five yeah, by you six. said I did
0: not know you had started, and started doing it. I painting
2: it, and it's like so much fun. And I haven't done any since school. Huh. And I like forgot a lot of stuff, so I'm making like mistakes, and then I—and I, then I remember, oh, this is how you do that. You know, and it, it's fun. coming, it's coming back to fun.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. So, and, and you ended up in the art world anyway. So I ended
2: up in the art world. I ended up uh, working for uh, an advertising firm in San Francisco. Did you work for gray? I worked for gray advertising. Yeah. I mean, we should
0: say, cause it's a big, I mean, it's, well,
2: well I don't, it's in not the, in San Francisco anymore. I don't think. No, but, think but it was, yeah, it was. I even, I even interviewed there once. So when did you interview there?
0: When, when I lived there, when I first moved to San Francisco in 95, 96. Oh, yeah. See,
2: I was there in 85, yeah. like 83 to 87, 88. And then I started a service bureau because I saw I could make a lot more money, and I instantly doubled my salary by creating a service bureau uh, at the time. Why don't you tell people? most people will not know what a service bureau is? A service bureau. Well, in those days, and it's different now than it yeah. was then. But I remember but the service bureau. Yeah. In, in the old days... You had to, you, and advertising agents made presentations, right. and so you had to comp up these things, these comprehensive things. You had to draw what an ad would look like. This is before computers. Sure, yeah. Everything you was did storyboards done. for yeah. video shoots and all that stuff. Yeah. Commercials. I actually, my one little minor claim to fame was the first person to put a Macintosh computer inside a major advertising agency in hmm. San Francisco I don't know what's happening in New York and Los Angeles but I had a brother-in-law at the time that was a developer for Apple and he said this is the future Huh? he's got to get one of these things yeah. and at first it was kind of like this little thing and it was sort of like a joke and stuff but when I started producing typography that was at the level of what they were paying hundreds of thousands sure. of dollars for it changed you were a genius. the industry. Yeah, sure. It, it did. changed the industry. Yeah, and uh, I was doing Ruby lists and all that shit. No, oh, he yeah. was in design school. Oh, yeah. All by hand, cutting it out, letters. Cutting and, it out. Yeah. And, and and even when you made stuff like that and then you, you t- took it to the printer, he had to take uh, photographs the of it of the, and make yeah. film of it yeah. and splice all that together. Yeah. It yeah. was a whole different. Sure. Process and then digital hit and the whole industry changed. Sure. This is like ninety three, ninety four. That's when I went to design school. I was cutting out, <laughs> but at the same time I had another class in the next room,
0: learning Photoshop, Illustrator, and Quark. Yeah. So I was doing both simultaneously, yeah. which was having a fundamental knowledge of traditional typesetting. Right. And then being able to, you know, obviously unlimited potential on the computer.
2: Yeah, that was a transition time for me too. That's when I moved to Denmark in ninety yeah. three. Huh and went to work on a part-time basis for a variety of agencies as a freelancer. It was difficult. It was difficult living in another country. Uh, I had traveled to Denmark several times on my own. I had some friends living over there, and then I married a Dane, and um, it was a trip. English was really spoken as a second language all the time, Uh, so it it was difficult to learn the language because of that until you got into marketing reports, and the marketing reports were all in Danish. And it was kind of like convincing somebody who had never heard of the Marx Brothers who the Marx Brothers were. Right. <laughs> uh, where do you begin? Right. And I would take these marketing reports home, show them to my wife and says, what does this mean? Well, she had no experience in advertising. She'd just shrug her shoulders and she'd say, I don't, yeah, I don't she know. Yeah, could, but she could translate well, it. Well, that's what I mean. But, but there maybe were, it wasn't even really translated, No, there was right? colloquialisms and, and things that referred to the culture that... It's very specific. Yeah. Yeah. When that became more cosmopolitan, when they were doing things for globally, right, international uh, then it was, it was different. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't hang around that long. Uh, I was there for a couple of years, and then I returned to the States, uh, picked up the pieces. Right. But, yeah, that was a huge revolution and changed the industry. Well, I
0: remember opening. just the desktop Mac thing when I was working at a place called Metaphor Imaging, and they did all the movie posters. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were using a proprietary system where they would send their digital artists to Phoenix to, to learn how to use this space station for retouching and, and creating posters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the Mac, the Quadras, came in, and it went from, they used to charge... Syntex
2: machines, they were called, weren't they? No, that, it was... What was it called? One of the machines that were, were you used. Your Cytex is what Cytex, you're talking about. yeah. yeah that's Cy, right. But
0: these weren't even Cytex. This was the next evolution <clears throat> before the desktop computer came in and they had to be specially trained and they were charging you know five hundred dollars an hour for these technicians these artists to sit and do these beautiful composite work and then i remember the mac came in and you know all of a sudden the prices dropped it was more economical for sony to spend hundreds of hours on the box, working uh, on these movie poster campaigns and all this stuff. And it was super fascinating for me to be a part of that transition, actually. Yeah. Uh, And to see that I now can do this. I don't need to go to Arizona to be trained on this crazy machine. I can get my own computer and I can learn to do this kind of work at a very high end. And I ended up becoming, because I freelance, like you, almost at the same time we were freelancing at the same time, Mm -hmm. I'm colorblind. Mm -hmm. I got in trouble. Mm I was working on a campaign. Mm. It was River Phoenix's last movie called A Thing Called Love. Uh-huh. And I had to take these images that were black and white uh-huh. and colorize them for the poster, which seemed kind of stupid now that you think, why didn't they just fucking give me color images? Right. Why would they give me black and white images to color? Right. Ridiculous. Anyway, they didn't know. I never told anybody I was <laughs> colorblind. So, Psychedelic
2: results. Well...
0: I was okay, they were both blonde, and they were wearing, like, denim outfits, so there's blue and blonde, that was easy, and then it came to the skin, I had to colorize the skin. And I just remember a junior art director coming up behind me going, um, excuse me, you know those people are green, right? I go, oh, yeah, well, I'm colorblind, yeah. and that was the shit hit the fan, yeah. I was being represented by artisan, Jamie, what a beautiful guy, I had this company who repped a bunch of graphic designers in LA and sent them out to all these agencies. And uh, they were so mad at me. And he was so... why He goes, why the fuck didn't you tell me you were colorblind? I go, well, I've been getting away with it for years. Right. And I thought I could just continue to get away with it. Right. Well, <laughs> the agency was called Dazoo. They were in North Hollywood. They really liked me a lot. And they felt really bad that I... So they said... You can keep working here, but you can only work on black and white campaigns. And I just remember, you know, going back in with my tail between my legs and them giving me some Barbie campaign in black and white. And it's like, fuck it. I'll, I'll keep taking their money. I'm still doing right. graphic design. Well, you know, people forget things. Well, it was within a few weeks. I was back working on color projects and everything was fine and it never came up again. Yeah. And of course, you know, I was a professional graphic designer and I still am.
2: And, uh, I think this is more common than you think, because uh, I, uh, I have stories about that, too. I'm not colorblind, but I, um, I took account executives on photo shoots who were colorblind, and they were there to approve the work. And this was the old days when you you know, you, you were working in 4x5 yeah. format, and if you had graduated to actually having a monitor so you could look at that image... And say, is is this good? Is this yeah. what you want? Yeah. And the the people standing there say, Oh yeah, that that looks great. You yeah. know, and I, I'm going, Are you sure? Are you <laughs> sure? <laughs> I think we should take another go at it. Just you know, try you and save to stop. soft this down yeah. a little bit because it's you know. And uh, then I found out that this account executive had been going on this on these shoots with me for a couple of years. Was he finally admitted he was colorblind?
0: You know, most of the illustrators at Warner Brothers were colorblind. That's why they that was the reason they came up with line artists. And then colorists.
2: Oh, that's right, yeah. They because, used to do cell painting, right? Yeah. Yeah. So they would,
0: they were master illustrators. Yeah. Like incredibly talented people. But yeah. they were colorblind. Uh-huh. Well, they were producing, you know, color films and yeah. things. Yeah. So this is how, as far as I understand, this is how that process got broken up. Yeah. is because they couldn't deal with color. And they certainly didn't want to waste their time. And they needed it to be correct. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to go back and forth and say, you know, that sky is purple and that's why i i used to paint as a kid mm-hmm. and then somebody would walk in the room and go ha, you know that sky's purple and i take a fucking screwdriver through it and i stopped Aww. painting i did i completely stopped painting yeah. i know why hitler was so upset by that so. <laughs> i mean he didn't really have to do all that but so anyway you and i have similar path mm-hmm. pathing if yeah. as it were uh, yeah you're Nidnoy, as they say in thailand a little bit older than me yeah so after you did the whole agency thing, how, how did you, what did you move forward with in your, career, your professional career?
2: Yeah, I was really burnt out in agencies. I was, you know, running down, up and down California Street with my portfolio and with 103 temperature and, you know, trying to make a deadline. And it was sick. I mean, I was, I was like, uh, I was completely burned. Yeah. And um, I, I never really made what you would call a break I always kind of sustained myself in one form or another, but then I, you know, I got married again 20 years ago, Mimi, with Mimi, and that changed my life, I went back to school, finally got my graduate degree in uh, gallery and museum studies, not okay. art history, like yeah. I had originally intended, but yeah. okay, and did my master's thesis and an exhibition on her brother, Ying, who was a yeah. great, a famous uh, ceramicist. Then I just, I started to do, I could do other things. I was free to do other things. And I got a real estate license. I did that for two or three years and worked in a gallery for a couple of years as an associate. Was that in Palm Springs? That was actually in Palm Desert. But yeah, yeah we were living in Palm Springs at the time. Yeah. And I kind of liked that. I, I, I never saw myself as much of a salesman, but i liked yeah, like well, to I talk could, about art.
0: Yeah, I could see you doing
2: that. So, you know. You're a good pitch, uh, man. It, 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 did, it was okay, you know. I started to get plantar fasciitis from standing around so Ooh. much, you know. So I, <laughs> I had to kind of give that up. So then we moved from Palm Springs to Ashland 10 years ago. And how'd that happen anyway? How did you find this place? Oh, I brought my kids here to theater when they were little. And I always liked it. I'd come up here. I'd even auditioned once. I did theater off and on, community theater, for about 10 years. And talk uh, about
0: that a little bit cuz I know you're a thespian so. Oh, it
2: was so much fun. It was the most fun I ever had. Yeah. But it was as anybody who's done theater work knows, it's incredibly time consuming and very difficult on a relationship if you're going from one play to the next and uh it's it's just it takes total dedication. Yeah. And I've never been totally dedicated anything. <laughs> to anything, no, except Mimi. No. Yeah, and your kids. Yeah, uh my kids and Mimi I'm dedicated, Uh, but um, and I would really call that sort of consistent love. This is consistent love. Uh, It doesn't change. You know, it's just it's there.
0: You know, uh, to interrupt you quickly is like you know your dog Cooper was very sweet. Yeah, it was presented to me in some way not too long ago that a dog's love is the most pure love there is,
2: Hmm.
0: and the reason is they're not carrying anything with them the next day.
2: Or the Every, next five minutes. Well,
0: and that's it. So it is constantly non judgmental, continuous stream of appreciation. Yeah. Something we are not, clearly. Well, they're not thinking about what they did. Or what you did. You no. might have you might have smacked the shit out of them the day before. Well,
2: that's something they don't forget. <laughs> well,
0: no, I think if it's continuous. Yeah, if it's continuous. But I'm just saying yeah. they're not taking one incident yeah. and judging you and then No.
2: They're very present. And, and I think kids are, are that present. way, too, also. Yeah. That, yeah.
0: I think that pure, continuous oh. love is real. And it's something that we lose. Yeah. We we take on too much, and then it taints us from being able to continuously just give this unconditional love. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know why that came. Oh, yeah, you are talking about dogs. You have a new dog, though, now, right? Hudson. Hudson. What a cute. Now, what kind of dog is that? He's a Labrador. Oh, another one.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. You like those dogs. Oh, I'm locked and loaded with that breed. Yeah, I mean, it's a great it's just, breed. Oh, no shedding. Yeah, super soft, Smart. super sweet. Yeah, it's yeah. They're loving. The know, this little call. guy is starting. He's only nine weeks old, and he's yeah. you know he's a puppy. I mean, I have this you know time to do this interview for, with you, and then I yeah, have to go have back to go home. We have to your switch baby. roles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's that's the stage. We knew what the stage was. Uh, we've been through it before. So um, yeah, no, they're they're great little creatures, and you can learn a lot from them. Um, just in, in terms of being present, they're just that's where they are. They're right. Here. We'll talk about what Cooper was doing while he was alive. I mean, he was a, a servant of the community. Yeah, he was. He was, uh, he was a, a therapy dog. Uh, he went to hospital. He went to assisted living places and just delighted everybody. My wife, Mimi, she has stories of going into these assisted living places and where you had somebody who's been catatonic, practically just in a corner staring at the floor yeah that's all they did and she started putting their hand lifting their hand up and putting them on the dog that's how she started with them Mm -hmm. and and first thing you know they would start moving their hand and within a few weeks of return visits these people started to come out whenever whenever the dog was there I mean, she had a lot of stories like. I need to get her in here because I think people need to hear about this kind of. uh, Oh, Uh, a lot of people know about therapy dogs. I mean, they're they're great. They have dogs for the deaf. They you know they have guide dogs. Uh, The Labrador was actually first bred in in Australia for people that were hypoallergenic to dog dander, and so they needed a non shedding dog. They needed a you know originally they're poodles and labradors. Right. So you have this uh, very athletic dog on the one hand. A very smart dog on, on the other, uh, easily trainable. I mean, this little dog is nine weeks old, mm-hmm. and Mimi has already taught him to sit, stay, and come. Now, you take a nine-week-old human baby; it's going to be a long time sure. before you can tell him <laughs> yeah. He's potty trained yeah. nine weeks, yeah. so they learn really fast if you're attentive.
0: Well, isn't that you're
2: going to spend time with them. So okay, so you just you just said the thing. That's it. Yeah,
0: that's all you have to do with us. Yeah, spend a little time with us, train us, and we'll be good dogs.
2: Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Good boy. <laughs> sit, Ubu, Sit. So you did some acting. You were in the theater. Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, I started at Chabot College. Where uh, was that? That's in Marine County. Okay. Um, how did you? How did you end up deciding that was something you want to do? I always wanted to do it. Okay. It just the. You know, I remember when I first went to college at Chabot College. The first part I got in the in their drama department was this anonymous fifteenth-century play called *Everyman*, and the first part that I was handed was to play God. <laughs> wow! <laughs> well, I just told the director I have no experience with this, and you know, uh, it's he's, funny. Uh, actually, you have all the experience. So I had the yeah, yeah right. So I had the um, uh, yeah, but I just didn't have the awareness, yeah, so I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah but it kind of got the bug there and then i went to a college of marin and took theater classes for a couple of years while i was working and um you know we'd just go at night or you know whenever i could get in there and then when i came back from denmark i continued with the with the theater program there and i uh, did about 10 plays uh with college of marin there was community theater in in marin county as well and one of the big venues was the, the Mountain Play, the Mount Tan Mountain Play. Mm-hmm. Uh it was an amphitheater, sat four thousand people, it was huge. And it had a short run in the summer months and they only did musicals. Mm-hmm. And musicals were so much fun to do. It was it was like I can't describe how fun it was! Even the rehearsals—I could fun. tell
0: just by attending musicals here. in yeah.
2: Ashland is yeah. like—they look
0: like they're genuinely having like this amazing no. experience. It's a gas.
2: Yeah, I was a terrible dancer. Uh, my voice was sort of mediocre, but I would started to take voice lessons, and you know, you can teach anybody to sing. Anybody, I don't care. Yeah. People say I'm tone deaf. Forget That's about not. that. Yeah, right. Don't worry about yeah. that. You give me three years at eighty-five dollars an hour. Yeah. I didn't spend that much money, but enough to be in chorus parts, and you know. Uh, so we did stuff, you know, we did My Fair Lady and Hello Dolly and South Pacific. That was fun. I had a lot of little roles that I played and
0: you know. You know, my aunt did music for that film. So.
2: Oh really? You remember my aunt's Gogi Grant? Oh that's right, Gogi Grant. Didn't she do yeah. South
0: Pacific? I I think she was on that yes. album, yeah. Yes. Yeah.
2: Oh wow, yeah. yeah. Now that was that was a lot of fun. But um yeah, you stand you're standing there on a stage, an eighty foot stage with four thousand people watching you. And you're just singing your heart out. You're dancing your heart out. You're acting your heart out. And it was great. It was fantastic. Mm. Um, I loved it. But it's really hard to have a relationship. It's really hard to have another job. Yeah. It's like it's about commitment. It's, uh, it's yeah. You you gotta you've got. And so a lot of people do community theater because it's seasonal and you know it's just right. a short. They're doing one play a year, maybe two. Right. And instead of doing like one right after another, right. like a professional actor would do. Right. So that allows a lot of, you know, amateurs like myself to jump in and, and play with some people who are professionals, right? you know, who are equity players, and you learn a lot from them. And sure. Highly recommend that all students take some kind of acting class. I uh, agree. Even if they're not, you know, don't want to do it. No, it's a good human <clears> development <throat> skill. Frankly. Oh, yeah. We did King Lear, which is a, a, probably one of Shakespeare's greatest plays, and the lead has to be played by an experienced actor. There's just no question about it. It's, it's a very complex emotional role. And so this man came in from, from North Carolina, and he was gonna play King Lear. It was an, uh, an elder man and perfect for it. He was, did a fantastic job. But what was great was sitting around in a round table and reading the script before we started rehearsals, what does this line mean? What is being conveyed here? If that class, as a class, could be taught mm-hmm. in every elementary or mm-hmm. even junior high mm-hmm. or high school, it's an eye-opener. Mm-hmm. You can learn so much about the human condition in a very short period of time if you understand that language. It's because
0: you're doing the examination of it.
2: That's right. Yeah. And that requires time. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, all of that was just, like, super cool. That's awesome. Been there, done that. And yeah felt like really complete for yeah. me. And I did a little acting when I was in Denmark, but not much. Yeah. And a lot of silent roles, evidently. <laughs> I was a juggler in one thing. Really? It was, yeah, it was it was great. I had the juggling down, you know, I had the juggling down. And then we did this dress rehearsal and they turned the lights on. So I when the balls went up, the lights were the balls were in the lights. Oh. <laughs> oh. I couldn't see them. I said, You gotta turn me around somewhere or another because I, I can't shut the s- lights off. I can't see Anyway. When did you start with photography? Probably when I was in Sunday school. I was probably about six years old, seven, eight. And I attended the Elmhurst Methodist Church in Oakland. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a guy there who took all the students from the Sunday school and taught them how to work a dark room. Mm-hmm. He had a dark room in his home. And so one of the parishioners there was a photography you know, geek and he knew everything and this was old school. Yeah. This is when you had enlargers and you had yeah, all I the cans and yeah. you had to learn how to load film into yeah. a canister and all was. that stuff. Yeah. And I had this little closet in my room and I built a cardboard shelf. So I had you know you had the you have the canister, you have the canister lid and then you have the spool yeah. that the film goes on. Yeah. And you had to practice you took a in dummy, dummy yeah. roll of yeah. film and you would practice yeah. with, you know, uh, in the in there with, you know. Literally blind darkness. work. Blind work. Yeah. Then you had to go into a safe light, a red light in, yeah. and for the enlarger. And, and so uh, I was hooked. I love that whole school of developing and watching. It was like sex. Sure. Watching this image come up out of the developer i find that interesting that you've equated this to sex oh it was it was it was i mean it was testicle city i yeah. mean it was like oh wow that's great you know it was good and and uh, i loved it and i could go in a dark room and and later of course when i was in college i was in, had a journalism minor and i was the photographer right on the school paper right and so everything it was old school back there, there was no digital digital right. i mean this right. was you know Sixty, what was Nineteen seventy, sixty-nine, sixty-eight. In that era, and um, so we had to process stuff and go out and shoot, uh, develop it, process it, and then and and then they had to you know make it up. Well, your work is beautiful. Oh, thank you. I mean,
0: no, you have a, a very impressive body of photographic work, and I know you're also a Photoshop geek too. And I, like, I love Photoshop. Yeah, and I, I like what you've done. What I noticed most about the work, especially when I first saw it, was, you know, when we take pictures of things, when we photograph things, it doesn't really end up like we see them. Not like we our vision sees them. Right. Right. I noticed that immediately, that you took whatever you shot and made it so you could see it mm-hmm. the way we would want to see it, mm-hmm. which is a striking difference from just taking a photograph and that's it, you actually... It's kind of a
2: cinematic perspective. That's right.
0: And, and because I love the cinematic perspective, I was very attracted to your presentation.
2: Well, I, you know, something really weird happened around that, too, because I noticed that I was doing that, and, and in, the, in the old days of digital... We were stitching things together. We were we were taking a panorama shot, which wasn't a panorama. It was right. a 50-millimeter shot, a series of 50 millimeters, and putting them together. Right. You get a little astalsis right where they come together, and so right. you have to manipulate that right. in, in, in Photoshop. But I, I found out about the guy, the uh, cinematographer, and I, I didn't know we were going to talk about this, and I completely spaced his name, but people out there will know it. He shot Citizen Kane mm-hmm. and others, and he had this cinematic perspective. He took a lot of angle stuff the way that I would see it mm-hmm. uh, from different, and it was completely revolutionary at the time. You yeah. know? It, was, it was so different and created a mood, of course, for that particular mm-hmm. film. But um, anyway, I found out that this guy, this, this cinematographer, died the day I was born. Wow. When I read that, it's just like, I wasn't thinking about my photographs, I wasn't thinking, and all of a sudden I went, ooh. You know, it just gave me the bumps, you know, uh, that that he had done that, and a very deliberate perspective of saying, okay, if you were standing there just looking at something, not with a lens between you and it, but just your eyes, how would this appear? Sure, yeah. You know, because you've got peripheral vision, you've got all this stuff, it fades at the far peripheral, but otherwise, you know... You've got the whole picture here, and it's all in focus. Right. There's no depth. Here. Right. It's just all, Very clear. your eye figures that out. Yeah. So. I mean, most of the
0: photography I do now with this little Sony I have, I have to go in there and do lens correction. Yeah. But I I want it to look like it would, I don't want, you know. Yeah. You have to remove the distortion. Right. In some way. That's right. Either stitch or whatever. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, it's fun. Yeah. So art for me has always been that. It's always what I wanted to do. I didn't want to be an attorney like my dad wanted me to be Perry Mason. I said, Dad, look, I've already figured out Perry Mason. The guilty guy is always on the stand at 20 minutes to the hour or 10 to the hour. Right. (laughs) It was so (laughs) formulaic. It was was so formulaic. (laughs) I took a law school test and, you know, I I passed it, but it was like,
0: "Ah, this is not. Well, I'm glad you did what you wanted to do.
2: By hook or crook, I mean, it was commercial. It was a commercial thing. I never had the uh, the nuts, as as you would say, to to go out on the fine art limb and yeah. just try to make it, you know, let's go to New York. and. It's pretty dangerous. I mean, it's pretty scary to put yourself, I mean, it's, that's yeah. very vulnerable. Artists are, you know. I wasn't ready to do it. That yeah, wasn't yeah. the path that I was destined to take. Yeah. And um, so I ended but up. But you peddled others.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so you were connected in a way without... Yeah. No,
2: that's what I was to do, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, that's the way it works out. Yeah. Yeah, i got to get Mimi in here. Well, after she listens to this, we'll see what oh, she Well, she can says. listen to all of them. I mean, uh, the whole yeah. idea is
0: I, I just want a candid uh, conversation with her. Yeah. And I, you know, we both love her and the, the reasons of her per- life perspective and... Yeah,
2: very interesting
1: background.
0: Yeah, and, and, and I think people would love to hear from her.
2: Oh, I'll mention it. Yeah. How you feel about what we did? I love this whole concept of podcast. I think you're really on to the mark that I've always loved, mm. which is I love your authenticity. That's what I love about you. And it's it just no matter how crazy you are, no matter how nuts you get, no matter how sane you get, no matter what you go through, what I'm always seeing is that you're a person that is being, trying to be as authentic as you can possibly be in an inauthentic con- context. Mm. I think that's where love is. I think that trying to say, well, this is the best, not just the best that I can be, but this is who I am Mm -hmm. right now, and, you know, you don't like it.
0: Well, it's more fun, honestly. Yeah. It's more
2: fun to be me because
0: anything else is, I'm faking it. Yeah.
2: Well, that's your sense of humor, too. I mean, people don't know you've got this whole stand-up thing that I think would just rip it's going to come out in this podcast it's well that's going to why come I'm doing out. this I, as I told
0: Mandy Valencia this is a chicken shit way for me to get out of me when I want to get out
2: without <laughs> having a fucking microphone and a spotlight on me and having to be overly prepared well I don't. I wouldn't be so self depreciating I, th- I think that it's not chicken shit I think it, it takes a lot of nerve to actually take this step and you're doing it in a nice way it's so polished I mean these, you know, first three or four episodes, the way you've structured it, the way you've put it out, I think it's going to catch. I think I think somebody's just going to say, wow, you know, this is what citizens should be about. Right. Talking their mind, talking yeah. about the things that really mean something to them. Yeah. Yeah. No, this, well, is, this is fantastic. I want to
0: keep going, and uh, th- there's nothing stopping me. It's not cost prohibitive. It doesn't cost me. <laughs> I did pay for some music on the first episode, but I have found... Yeah. Uh, FMA free music archive I can have all the shit I want and it gives me a lot of creative latitude and and I get to talk with my friends and the world whoever my mom whoever one person's listening uh, gets to uh, have an experience with the people that I have experiences with and gets to just hear about all these different things and it could be inspiring someone to do something else that they didn't know could be done or Anyway, I love you, and I I totally appreciate that you came to chat with me. Love you, dude. Yeah. Namaste, motherfucker. (laughs) Well, that's the show. I want to thank Alan Hicks for coming in and saying hello. It's always great to see him and talk to him. I want to thank Zach Ellert for letting me come into his shop Zach can be found at Rogue Frameworks Ashland Street Cinema Shopping Center. He's right next door to the movie theater. I'd also like to uh, acknowledge a uh, young citizen who stood up in the face of absolute evil to defend another human being and lost his life. Tali, a beloved resident here in Ashland, was one of the young men who was killed in Portland on a train trying to defend somebody who was being harassed. It's just another sad incident where we lost a teacher. Uh, Someone was willing to sacrifice their life to show us how much work we actually need to do. And this will no doubt continue until we decide that we're going to take care of each other appropriately and uh, educate each other in a way where this type of outcry, this type of response our societal suffering is no longer in existence. But until then, I'm sure there will be more young citizens like Tali who will stand up to the truth and be unafraid to uh, accept the circumstances and the consequences uh, of being a stand-up citizen. It's always great to be here and, and share my life with you, my experiences, my words with you and bringing more of me to you, uncensored, as always. May the rest of your week bring you all the things that you want, especially peace. Thank you so much. Until next time, word to your mother's uncle.
2: Citizen 44.